The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. Yourself? Doing well. Thanks for being here. Joining uh, Father Jenkins and myself tonight, as promised, is Mr. Thomas Condit. Uh, he has uh, been on the program previously. Uh, we promised him to appear in our uh, most recent program. So, uh, Mr. Condit, welcome to the program. Always an honor to be back. Good to you. Well, uh, Mr. Condit, I'll start with you as, as our guest. Father Jenkins and I, in our uh, most recent program, we discussed this uh, House Resolution 6666 uh, bill. And so, I, I would like to get your, your take on this. Father Jenkins and I, like I said, we spent some time discussing this. Uh, I, I believe we've all read through it. Um, in your, your profession as a lawyer, what is your legal perspective on this bill, the HR 6666? Well, my first of all, I'm very happy it's not very long because yeah. Congress can really pump out some long, unreadable stuff. But so this is a relatively small piece of work. Um, my t- my first take on it is that it's got the kind of nebulous phrasing here and there that's you know is where all the mischief mm-hmm. would lie. Let me just let me just read. If I may, the first just a few little pieces. So it starts off saying it's to authorize the Secretary of Health and Human Services to, to award grants to eligible entities, which are defined later, to conduct diagnostic testing for COVID-19 and related activities. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Such as contact tracing, which itself is a huge problem uh, for any free thinking people. Okay. And related activities such as contact tracing through mobile health units and as necessary at individual residences and for other purposes. So first, who decides what's necessary at individual residence? That's a that potentially is a real big problem if if you're not perfectly welcome there. Uh, and 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 for other purposes, what does that mean? So right, right the door is just flung wide open now for uh, when when someone deems it's necessary to come to your homes for that and other purposes. The other thing, the, the, so the, um, the, then the, um, some definition sex, or starts off section two, uh, again, may award grants to eligible entities to conduct diagnostic testing for COVID-19 to trace and monitor the contacts of infected individuals and to support the quarantine of such contacts through, and then it lists mobile health units and some other ways they would, they would do that. So I, when I first read this, my first reaction was, um, if you think that uh, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are public servants, then you'll love this because they are here to support you. They're, they're here to support your quarantine. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not designed as something that's going to be mandated or oppressive. They're here to support your quarantine. So... Um, I think it's 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 just the kind of language that 
I, I always shudder and I think that once this gets in the hands of, once this passes, and then they can appoint bureaucrats to enforce it, and then judges can interpret it. This, this can go anywhere. Mm -hmm. Does it concern you that we have a Democratic sponsor and about 57, 58 Democratic co-sponsors? But there was one Republican who signed on, but then canceled. I mean, the fact yeah. that this is a Democratic-led initiative, is that a concern as far as how they, they would tend to interpret these, these words? Well... I, in the end, I don't think it's going to come down to how the legislators interpret them. The interpretations are going to go on somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Like I said, either by the agencies that are empowered to implement this or the judges who hear disputes over it. What is intended but, by but, this? Though? But Sure, the intentions. Look, anything initiated all by Democrats is always a concern. <laughs> I mean, it's, you, you, they're just so... so the, I, I think it's an indicator of of what the motives are behind this. That you can easily understand when you see it's from fifty seven Democrats instead of fifty seven Republicans. I think right away you know the motives will be different as a general rule. But um, yeah, I just I look at the language and what how it will be implemented by people other than the legislators. I see, and it can go in any possible direction here. Mm -hmm. Now, as I understand it, this is going to be at the discretion of the. Department of Health and Human Services, is that right? The uh, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, right? Right. Well, at its core, it's a funding bill. Mm -hmm. at, at its core, it says they may award grants to eligible entities mm -hmm. and to do all of these things. So, so in the end, it's going to be the, the, the discretion of the state governments and maybe the, the federal to, to, uh, to just start giving money to people to... You know, I, well, a kind of related thing I saw where the governor of Washington uh, has already has a big crew of people in place to be contract contact tracers, uh, maybe 30,000. I mean, really, a whole bunch of people are already, I guess, employed or, or lined up to, to play this role of Could following you what that is. That role is of contact tracing, contact tracing, as this is, I understand that's it. what this is. Yes, that is centering. On. Yeah, as I understand it. That when you are, um, of course, again, you've got different governors taking it in different directions. But it, my basic understanding is when someone is found to be infected or maybe even just with someone who's been infected, they will then follow you. They will, if not physically follow you through electronics and your phone and things like that. They, they know where you've been. They know where. And this is now a this this is the kind of stuff that always was just like like the classic characterization of the com the ultimate communist country you know just mm -hmm. just clamping down mm -hmm. and so contact tracing a term I never heard three weeks ago is taking root and just flying now and and you say that they have all of these these individuals these thirty thousand something individuals ready to go does that mean they are anticipating the passage? No, no, this is in the state of Washington. So now this, what we're looking at here is would, if passed would be a federal law. Okay. This is, I, I used the state of Washington as an analogy. That governor already has contact okay. tracing going in Washington. Mm -hmm. Wow. From, from what I understand. So, so, um. My understanding is that if someone, anyone, is found to have the corona, the uh, COVID 19 virus, that anybody who is in contact with those persons socially for a previous day to two weeks, perhaps, 
they have to be discovered and they have to be tracked down. Anyone who's been associated with them I, I, at the supermarket or wherever else, right? So it could include quite a group of people. Right? Well, it could, and it really, it really has them just following all of your associates. Who are you associating with? It, again, the, the reason I don't want to speak too definitively because in just the things I've read, kind of quickly here and there, you know, different governors, different places, different advocates are saying different things about what may or may not happen. So I don't want to be inaccurate, but. But that certainly is the sense I get, is that the, really the they're going to be monitoring you, your friends, uh, who you've been with, where you've been, and, and, and they've got a big army ready to do that work for them. Wow. Well, $100 billion, at least for the rest of yeah. this year, <clears throat> spread over, let's say, however many months it takes is left in this year after this passage, yeah. right? Basically, they've already, they're dedicating $100 billion to the rest of this year whenever this goes into effect. Right, right. So that could, uh, that could certainly get a lot of domestic spies on, uh, on the payroll, right? It sure could. Why, why do you think that, that there's so much uh, kind of vague language in this bill? Like you said, this, these kind of nebulous uh, implications for some of this language in here. Is that typical uh, of bills that we see today? Do you think that there is... I, I think it is. I think a lot of it is the legislators are lazy. Really? They're lazy. They, they, it, it takes hard work to write things with precision. Mm -hmm. And I think they're lazy because they want to, first of all, they're doing, a lot of them are doing it for politics. They want to say, I introduced this bill. And, I'll, and they'll characterize it in ways that flatter themselves. Mm -hmm. And, uh, well, I, well, it's always stuck in my mind as something that what someone said about the the Americans with Disabilities Act, which passed in 1991. I was right out of law school and I was reading about it. And somebody made the, the very point, I don't know if he called them lazy, but, but, it, but in, a, in essence, the, the author did, because he said they're basically, some of the phrases were so vague and arguable that what the legislators were really doing is, okay, politically, we want to get this through to assist the disabled and to pat ourselves on the back. And ultimately, we know the judges are going to be the ones deciding what this means. We know there's going to be lawsuits over this and mm -hmm. employers needing to know, am I violating this act if I don't provide this or that to a disabled worker and, or, the, or the workers suing the employer? The judges are going to, the, the legislators throw it out. They're really unfinished. And the judges are going to be the ones that decide what it means. And, and I can, that was 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah. and I, 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 can, think, I can speak to that, that bill uh, myself on a, a first-hand basis. I actually I have uh, a, a degree in sign language interpreting, and that the, the ADA played a, played a big role in the, uh, the, the legal aspects mm -hmm. of, of sign language interpreting. And I remember um, quite, quite frequently throughout my, my college courses, mm -hmm. there was a significant amount of discussion surrounding this ADA because it was so vague. There, mm -hmm. there would be things like um, businesses are required to provide reasonable Reason, service. Reason, reasonable accommodations. <laughs> reasonable accommodations. <laughs> and I, I remember at one point, we even, we even had a, uh, a class that focused specifically, specifically on legality and, uh, and, and deafness and interpreting and, and legal issues. And for one of our projects, we had to, uh, to go to different businesses and, and kind of see if they were complying with this ADA Act. Mm -hmm. And across the board, I mean, there was absolutely no, no semblance whatsoever of compliance with this ADA. 
day right. just because it, like you said, so so incredibly nebulous, so so vague. Right, and that's um, why people call laws like that the Lawyer Full Employment Act. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that I mean that that just on a on a the, the lawyers call it. That. Well, yeah. every people well lawyers and people who don't like lawyers call it that. Yeah. <laughs> just just speaking in general though, I mean this this doesn't seem to be good legal work because it seems it would create so many problems when you have things that are just so so incredibly vague you know things like, like we talked about the funding how such sums as may be necessary uh, right. for, for the following fiscal years related services things like that. Is, that that's not good legal work is it wouldn't that just create more problems than it's trying to solve well, it, it would it would and i think i think you'd see a lot less I think the courts would be less busy if the legislators wouldn't be so lazy. Really? I mean, define what you're putting into law. Define it. Yeah. Don't throw out four vague phrases that everyone's going to be arguing out, arguing the first week what it means. Do you think there could be a more nefarious purpose than, than laziness, though? Do you think that they kind of purposely left things vague so that they can essentially... Well, yeah. not that I'm a conspiracy <laughs> theorist. Of course but, not. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I th I, yes. I mean, I personally think the minds of legislators are, some of them, the leftists. If we can get this in the door, if we can just get it through, um, then then all... You, you know, I, I, I once represented a group of people up in a city near Dayton, Ohio, in a challenge on a number of constitutional things and one of them was a pa old pastor of a protestant church a bit of a character and enjoyable guy to talk to he said a line which i thought was so funny and so true he, he said a conservative is someone who reads old newspaper clippings and the, the, the point is and i know this happened through the years that if you go back i'm trying one of the i forget which one it was maybe it was the civil rights act of 1964 where you know, the proponents of it said, oh, no, no, this will never be used to do that. And of course, 20 years later, that's exactly what was happening. So mm -hmm. so I think when they write and leave the leave the barn door open, so to speak, with these vague phrases, I think a lot of them have every motivation that that's exactly what they're doing. Well, that's what the fact checkers are saying about this now. Mm -hmm. When people are raising objections now about this, the fact checkers are coming out saying, no, it doesn't say that. <laughs> Where are you getting this? <laughs> yes. you know? Yeah. No, it couldn't possibly be interpreted that way. But of course, uh, they uh, they have their own agenda, don't they? But what about um, uh, the, the the title of our last program, Mr. Condit, was uh, said something about the health care SWAT teams coming to your door or something to that effect. Was that an overstatement? Do you think? Oh, probably not. I mean, I, 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 can see, I can see left to some governors the way they've exhibited themselves here in the last month. I, I, I can see. I mean, clearly this, this anticipates them coming to your door. It's right there to your residences mm -hmm. as necessary. Um, right. It doesn't say who invites them or who determines. And, and therefore, if they know, if the contact tracers say, okay, uh, so-and-so down there on Elm Street was with Jones over on Vine Street, and we know Jones has the virus. We better go down and go down to Elm Street and visit them and see. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, I could see that kind of stuff coming out of this. Wow. What What do you uh, foresee happening with this bill? If you want my political prediction, I think it never gets out. I think the Senate, the, a Republican Senate, will understand 
the suicide of, mm-hmm. of, I mean, Republicans aren't always that bright, as we know. <laughs> but, uh, I, I don't think it'll get out of the Senate. I don't, my guess is Trump would, would, would veto it if it did, maybe. Sure. I, I, I think the chances of becoming law are probably, politically, are probably not very good. But the Democrats who are sponsoring this uh, must realize that even better than you. So what, is their, what would their purpose be? Are they trying to send a signal to somebody? Uh, Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't get in the mind of what a Democrat. They, what do they, <laughs> they tend to gain from this? Uh, Say, look, we tried to bring yeah. the support, and the Republicans wouldn't let oh, us. Serve. I can see that. I mean, I can see that. It's curious. Yeah. Hmm. Well, uh, Mr. Condit, on a more, uh, more, more general, widespread view of things, how do you, uh, how do you view everything that's that's been happening with the? Uh, just, uh, I f- think, just speaking before the program, I think you, you use the word crazy, um, just with that, everything that's going on with the, uh, the lockdowns, the restrictions, the stay-at-home orders, and, and all of that that has been in place. Uh, I know we were just kind of laughing before the program about this story of uh, Ben Roethlisberger, the, the Steelers quarterback, how he, uh, during the offseason, had grown quite the uh, impressive head of hair, full beard and everything, and now I guess they are... Uh, his team is starting some practicing drills, and there was a video of him with a nicely shaved, uh, nicely shaved head, very trimmed beard. And it, it turns out that he had gone to some barber in town, and the uh, the governor of Pennsylvania actually spoke out very, very harshly against this. He, uh, I have a quote of his here. He said that uh, anybody who puts himself or herself into harm's way is something that I think we ought to try to avoid. I said, when you go to something like a barber shop and you're not protected, I don't care who you are. The chances of that virus actually wreaking havoc on your life increases. I don't personally think any Pennsylvanian ought to take that chance, and I certainly don't want to take that chance myself. You think the governor of Pennsylvania is being reasonable here? That's literally a hysterical (laughs) statement. That's a hysterical statement. Guy went and got a haircut, obviously from someone he knew. You, you assume, and uh, and um, I mean, listen to that. Putting himself in harm's way and getting a haircut, wreaking havoc on his life. <laughs> this is this is bizarre. This is really this shows that, and and it's this isn't like oh the wacky governor of such and such a state. This is like dozens of governors now. Yeah, and so I think I think it portends very poorly for. Uh, you know, you mentioned the word, you used the word crazy before, and I've referred to the psychotic states of America right now, mm. because we not only have the politicians saying psychotic things, right, but then law enforcement trying to enforce what these, what they're being ordered to do, can do things that, I mean, I'm not a psychologist or not, but just reading the description of psychosis, it's, it seems that they're doing psychotic things. Uh, in trying to enforce what the is governors are, 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 or I should say, perhaps the health directors of the various states are doing, right? Uh, commanding it, what they're mandating, okay? It, it's just incredible how much power they have, though, according to the state state regulations, right? How much these health commissioners, commissars, uh, whatever you want to call them, how much power they have over the, the entire population of the state. Now, you're somewhat familiar with uh, the revised code of the state of Ohio, mm-hmm. I imagine. I'm sure you are. And you saw that the the order came out originally mandating the stay-at-home policy here, right? Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. in Ohio, and it referred to a certain uh, section of the code. Right, that seems awfully broadly written. So that the there's there's a, a woman by the name of Amy Acton, right. Doctor Amy Acton, whom uh, our own Michael DeWine, the governor, put in power. Right. One of the first things she did when she had that power was abuse it, at least in my book, by overriding all of the government investigation that was going on about an abortionist. And she simply, motu proprio, gave him a license mm-hmm. to operate, right? Despite all of the problems, legal problems involved there, she simply gave it to him. And, uh, and now she's basically almost dictating the, uh, the lives right. of the uh, people in Ohio right now, right? Who's right. essential? Who's not? Right. Right. And so, uh, I mean, what what do you make of this? Maybe I'm asking you too broad a question. Well, yeah, much, and don't, you know? don't assume any lawyer is too familiar with the Ohio Revised Code from beginning to end, because it's always changing. But I, I do know that uh, that the, you know the the statute in Ohio gives a lot of power, gives some specific power in specific emergency situations. To the uh, to the health director, which is why apparently she signs orders, then the governor doesn't. So she's, there's a legal basis for that, if I understand it correctly. Um, but you know, the, the, look, this is a problem of of uh, you know the whole uh, bureaucratic state. I mean, people that no one voted for <laughs> are, and, and so you got to say this goes back to Governor Dewine. If he's going to appoint someone like that, and look, he's at press conferences every day or multiple times a week, just backing this up 100%. So it's on him. But legally, she's been empowered by, you know, what's in the Ohio Revised Code. But the state legislature is challenging that, right? I think, I believe trying they... to limit her. Uh, yes, I believe they just went into session to, tr- to pay, try to pass something to limit her. But he says they will not, he will not let them do that, right? He's going to veto that legislation, even of his own he, Republican majority yeah. house here. It wouldn't surprise me. Really? Yeah, not, wouldn't surprise me. I think this governor in Ohio, I know we're talking to a broad audience around the world, but the governor of Ohio, I don't think, has ever been as conservative as he. He's a Catholic with eight children and lost one in a tragic car accident years ago. And um, and so he's always had the image of a good family man, and I don't want to cast aspersions on that. But politically, in office, I don't think he's ever been as conservative as as his image is. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I'm grateful because at least there's always been that recognition that churches have the the right, right, the constitutional right to function. And that has been respected here in the state of Ohio, largely, right? Yeah. So, I mean, w- w- I've been telling people I'm just very grateful that I'm not in the People's Republic of China, I'm not in Great Britain, I'm not in Kentucky, and I'm not in Michigan. Not necessarily in that order, <laughs> but I'm grateful that I'm in Ohio, and a lot of that comes down to Governor DeWine, you know, having that respect for the Constitution. So uh, I appreciate that very much. But there's this, this dichotomy. There's even a contradiction going on here that is right. very worrisome. Right, Mr. Count, what, what do you think of uh, of these uh, some protests that have, that have been been going on um, against Governor DeWine and, and I guess uh, Doctor. Dr. Acton, where, I mean, uh, like, like Father Jenkins said, you know, they have, uh, from our Catholic perspective, um, very 
definitely very very good thing that they have recognized our, our right they even labeled uh, churches and religious services as essential essential services um, so they have recognized that right we we really haven't been impeded in our worship uh, here here at church in any way so uh, what do you what do you make of these these protests that have been occurring let me circle to that by first saying I think I think a lot of credit goes to Governor Abbott of Texas because he was the first one as I understand it to come forward and say in texas religious are essential mm-hmm. services <clears throat> and and i quite frankly wonder how governor dewine in ohio would have would have handled it if uh, to me governor abbott threw down the gauntlet to yeah. every other governor so well, god bless actually, him in amy acton's initial order uh religious organizations and groups were listed under as e under this long list so they were not Toward the bottom of the list, they were toward the top of the list as, as being essential services. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. well, that's, so, well, that's good to know. Yeah, uh, give them credit for that. Right. So I, uh, good. So I, but but nonetheless, I mean, so many of them closed down. The rest were being pressured. We were being pressured too. We sure were. You know, um, as it was made very clear to me by the health officials, they really wanted us to close our doors. They just, right. they really, really wanted us to close doors, and there was social pressure from the from the neighborhood too. You know. Yeah. So, I mean, well, and, we, and Governor DeWine, Governor DeWine made the statement within a week or two after after saying the churches are exempt from the shutdown, basically saying it was so dangerous, it was unchristian to go to church, That's yeah. which was just yeah. A, yeah, it was unchristian yeah. to, to put people at risk. Yeah. So, so, that, so at a minimum, there were really some bad mixed messages coming out of, uh, of Columbus, Ohio. At one point, I, I had the impression he was inviting this this. The community to intervene, to yeah. take the law into their own hands. I, I would like to think you would never consciously do that. But. Well, th- then we had the county prosecutor here in Hamilton County, Ohio, come out with a statement in response to some private citizens being a little bit uppity, maybe, about not social distancing. He, he expanded and targeted the church with his comments, saying, if I was governor, the first people at church on Sunday would be the National Guard. Wow! Right, right, right. And uh, an astounding comment from a public official. From a and he is elected. Someone who fashions himself as a conservative, and indeed who went to the same high school I did, to come out and say the first, uh, the first thing, first people at church. If I was governor, would be the National Guard. Wow! What are these guys thinking? What's 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 happening to them? I, I think it just came out today, actually, that uh, this stay-at-home order that Governor DeWine had in place here in, in Ohio, it, it has uh, been rescinded and, and changed to strong a strong recommendation. Uh, I, I found that rather surprising. Has there has there been times before where our uh, our governors uh, have have kind of talked about all of these strong? Um, you know, kind of suggestions versus an actual and kind of actual order. Well, I, I can tell you, I other than going away to college for a while, I've been in Ohio my whole life, and I, I don't ever. Well, no, doesn't matter where I was outside of Ohio. I don't ever remember anything like this happening in my whole life. Yeah. This is total. Father Jenkins, you're in my generation. Let's say, uh, uh, have, can you recall anything like? Can you recall? I certainly don't. No, no this is unprecedented. But I don't recall the health director has been, you know, crowned <laughs> you know, right. vice regent for 
vice-gerent right. to the government of Ohio or anywhere else for that matter. Hmm. Um, you know, the, um, the matter of, of the, the church and, and religious worship, what came to mind when I heard about all, all this coming down the pike here was what Albert Einstein said uh, when he saw the Nazis rise to power in Germany. He said at first he thought that the, the, uh, the universities would oppose the Nazis, and then he saw that they all caved in. And then he thought the press, the press would stand up and oppose the Nazis. And he says they all began to count out of the Nazis, they all caved in. He said the only institution that stood up was the church. Right? And then what did we see this time? They all folded, right? Starting with Francis, right? And starting with Rome, right? And then all the way throughout the country, they all just folded right up. Right. So willingly, so readily, mm-hmm. without a whimper, it seemed. You know? mm-hmm. That's scary. It's a scary thought. It, it, it is. I was, I, I was just floored when I saw that, that without any government, that, there wasn't even really a push from the government yet. Mm-hmm. And they just shut it down. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think, Father, now some of the, uh, the Novus Ordo churches are beginning to kind of slowly open back up, and there's a lot of uh, protocol that I, I guess is, is, is being enforced. Um, I don't know to what extent it's being enforced. Um, but what, what do you think about that, Father? I know um, here in, in our Church Immaculate Conception, we still have uh, some of the original protocol that, that you introduced when this all first came about. Um, what do you what do you think about all this protocol being being mandated in these these Novus Ordo churches? To what extent is it being mandated, and do you think that that is a, a good idea? Well, Tom, that's an interesting question because since those churches were all closed down all this time, I mean, the, their activities were extremely limited. You, you heard about priests going out with squirt guns and sh- squirting people with squirt guns, holy water and squirt holy guns. water. <laughs> And uh, priests, uh, social distancing, hearing confessions as people drove up and heard, went to confession, and there was the, uh, the folding chair there, and you know would give them absolution. This is the Nova Sordo now, but actually anything going on inside the church, strange forbidden, right? Absolutely forbidden. Now that they're opening up, now they find that they are being required to accept protocols that were every bit as stringent is what we did ourselves. We just took this upon ourselves thinking, okay, well, if they're concerned about these things, we'll meet their concerns and uh, we'll show that this is that important to us and they're not going to stop us. They're just not going to stop us from practicing our faith. And if we have to uh, go out of our way to do this, we'll go out of our way to do this. I'm thinking what our Lord did to give us the Mass and the sacraments and what uh, somebody, I mean, the, the early Christians did, especially the martyrs, to have the practice of their faith. And this is nothing in comparison. I mean, washing your hands with sanitizer when you come to the church, that's nothing in comparison with what our, our ancestors of the faith had to endure. And all we're going to be showing by this is how important that is to us. And okay, fine. fine. We'll, we'll go along with this somewhat. But see, I was quite convinced, and I still am convinced, I, that this is a real virus out here, that there is a real SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19, that this is a real coronavirus. I happen to believe, from what I've been reading, that it was uh, designed, okay? Uh, it was part of the gain-of-function 
experiments that were going on. Actually, after they were forbidden in this country, uh, they were being carrying on in Wuhan in China in, in their Bio4 lab with, uh, of all things, $3.7 million that was funneled to them by Antonio Fauci, Anthony Fauci, right? Fauci, yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, if this is true, we paid for this, you know, apart from we paid for this virus. <clears throat> I happen to believe that's true. I don't know if there's a way to prove it one way or the other, but I happen to believe that that's exactly what happened. But in any case, um, I'm still convinced that this is a real virus. I'm convinced that they're artificially inflating the danger of the virus, though. I'm convinced they're artificially inflating it because the leftists want to use it. To, to drive this through. <clears throat> and I don't think I'm just being gratuitous about this. It's not just a matter of just the leftist mentality in general. The idea of using a crisis, creating a crisis, and then using it. But when George Soros comes out publicly and says, this is a wonderful opportunity. We have an opportunity to do more than we, things we could never even dreamed about accomplishing before. We now have the opportunity to do this, to accomplish this because of COVID-19. George Soros comes out publicly and announces this to the world. I mean, what does that tell anyone who has ears to hear and you know, ears to hear and eyes to see? Uh, what the leftists are actually up to here. <clears throat> so I believe this is a virus and it is killing people and it's killing people in a very horrible way. Evidently, it does it does something to the blood, which affects the blood's ability to carry oxygen to the body. It's a, an awful thing. But I do believe that they are, they are exaggerating this in the hopes of ramping up fear so that they can control people. Mm -hmm. um, therefore, I still do believe that we have to take precautions. I really do. I think the precautions are common sense. So here we are. Okay, the other churches are coming out of hibernation now. And we're being told by the governors, this is the most dangerous time of all now when we're going to start the second wave of the virus. So this is when we have to impose all of these rules and regulations you have to follow in your newly opened churches. This is the time when we, after five or six weeks of this, are getting really tired of this, really want to stop doing this. I don't know if this transition time is the time for us to drop all of that and say, okay, now that they're back online, the other churches, they're picking up on all this. And I think they're taking it very seriously, actually. And I, I think they're being watched closely. Mm -hmm. Even if, even if the, the local constabulary weren't watching them very closely, there'd be people in those churches watching them and reporting them very carefully mm -hmm. to make sure they're following exactly the line. Uh, so, but I, I think we have reasons of our own for still maintaining a certain cautionary attitude about all this. Even apart from government involvement, I think we have to be careful which, with prudence that is just dictated by common sense when you have an actual microbe out there. Believe me, I do not believe all these reports about how how uh, dangerous this thing is in comparison with any other disease the world has ever known. I don't mm -hmm. believe that. Okay? Mm -hmm. I don't believe the reports, the studies that say this is 13 times more deadly than the, than the flu. Than yeah. what flu? I mean, you have all kinds of different flus. But these reports keep coming out and, and they are, one is more nonsensical than the other. One is more uh, hysterical than the other. Mm. I do believe that this is a real virus, though, and we have to be careful. Can I can I pick up on that for a minute? Uh, you, you know, I just brought a couple of things. You know, the inter the internet, of course, is loaded with a lot of stuff and a lot of good stuff. 
uh, you know, the, the song. The, I just came. There are two I printed off that uh, that I just found pertinent to this thing. How how I've, I've been saying now for months. I I think the, the virus is real. The crisis is not. Mm-hmm. This is what I as the data came out, it was clear. So two things quickly. Here's a piece. I don't know. Um, I don't know what the website is, but the the author is Brittany Hughes. Mm. Um, and it's titled Last Year's Flu Season Was the Deadliest in Four Decades, but Prompted Zero Shutdowns. And she just picking some pieces. Last year's flu season was the deadliest since 1976, with far more fatalities than the 56,000 who died in 2011 and 12. Now, the flu season, I guess, is March to, or I'm sorry, September. About a five-month period, they considered October to March or something like that. November to March, maybe. Uh, In addition, more than 900,000 people were hospitalized with the flu last year alone. Among those lost to the flu last year were 180 children, a record high for a non-pandemic flu season. Says there were three. Normally, it's regional, and then it spreads. They said there was three consecutive weeks when the entire continental U.S. was affected by flu at a very high level. Uh, concluding, she said, despite the high prevalence of flu cases, the record number of fatalities, both among adults and children, and the concentrated outbreak across a short window of time, no economic shutdown, social distance, distancing mandates, or store closures were mandated as a result of that seasonal flu. And it, it, I think it really is important reacting politically and, and, and as a population. Well, it has to make that distinction. Yeah, it has to be. Now, the other one I want to point out, this is written by a guy who's done a number of good pieces. His name is David Horowitz with right. Conservative Review. And the, this was just a day or two ago. The title was, We Have Been Lied To, Six Facts That Change Everything We Know About the SARS-CoV-2 Virus. These are just the six categories. And he backs it up with some data and some references. Number one, the shocking inflation of the COVID-19 death numbers. And we know from various sources that they're just loading up the numbers, which were not caused by the virus. Two, states with longer lockdowns had worse results. Three, outside nursing homes, the fatality rate never warranted such action, even if it would work. Four, outside New York, this is barely worse than a bad flu season. Five, excess deaths are from lockdowns, not the virus. And there, there is apparently a fair bit of anecdotal evidence of people dying at home because they won't go to the hospital right. of, of other maladies. And then six, and I'd heard this from another source and thought it was a joke, but I never knew this. Apparently this is factual. Social distancing was invented by a high school kid and politicians, not scientists. <laughs> yeah. And the specific data explanation he gives for that, the print is so small here, I, I can't really try to read it <laughs> the way it printed off my computer. But he made the point that back then, back in 2006, it came out of a high school sociology paper, and it was mocked by the epidemiologists. Really? Now it is absolutely essential. It's part of a, a propaganda it's stream. The canon, it's a, that, the canon of the medical yeah. field. Yeah, well, you know, we, you've got the highway signs that they put up over the last 15 years to warn of accidents ahead and all this stuff. And all that now is just telling you social distancing. Social distancing. I mean, it's just you don't 
don't get away from it. It is. It's like a dogmatic governmental. Uh, well, you know, you know uh, actually, it was kind of, I was reading statistics today that was trying to do the, the tracing, you know, how, how people got infected with the disease. And the vast, vast majority, 99.9 something percent of the people who actually came down with this, they say got it who were social distancing. There was an infinitesimally small number of people who they actually traced to being out and about and getting it out, traveling around out there. That's where the real danger is. And say the number is 66%, they say, of the people in New York who came down with this were actually confined to quarters at home. They were observing the quarantine at home when they were. And, and that doesn't even, by the way, count those who you say didn't make the call because they didn't want to be whisked off to the hospital. Right. Right. So how many how many would that counter? Well, Father, if that's true, if uh, like Mr. Conant says here, if this is really uh, essentially not much worse than a bad flu season, if the social distancing is, is not uh, not not effective, why do you continue to implement it at, at the church here? Well, I don't know that it is that it that it is. Well, first of all, I didn't know if it was a high school. <laughs> it, it would make perfect sense because the whole idea of social distancing it seems very which they say uh, it doesn't seem like a medical well, uh, yeah. real there's no there's no <laughs> science involved in that it doesn't sound like it, no. but it seems like common sense like I think we all do that if somebody's sneezing and hacking and carrying on we do tend to draw away don't we sure. I mean just common sense that's why when I got up in the pulpit I said look I'm not speaking as a doctor, but it just seems common sense, you know, that if there's something going around and, you know, you realize it can, it can be transferred by sneezing and droplets in the air, it makes common sense to give space. Besides, Tom, I actually have a certain, um, what should I say? I can't say that I like the idea of social distancing. Uh, I think all conservatives have, want their space. I think it's natural for conservatives to want their space, okay? So when I think of social distancing, I, I think in terms of the, I, the idea, here we are, okay? We have spread the people out of the church. We've gone from two masses to four masses at our chapel. What's not to like about that? For any traditional Catholic, mm -hmm. to go from two masses to four masses at their chapel, the, the priest is willing to make that, to do that. Even old crotchety priests like me, who are barely, uh, you know, seaworthy here on our legs, <laughs> we're, uh, we're willing to do that for the sake of everybody involved and for the sake of keeping the wolf away from our door. But how could anybody object to saying, we don't like this, we want to go back to two masses? Mm -hmm. I don't know that anybody would reasonably say that. But there are also issues, too. I mean, uh, what, what Catholic would not say, you know, I, I much prefer to be jammed into the pew with, with uh, 20 people rather than spread out and have my family together. My family is a family unit together. I'd much rather have this, this throng of people and my family basically crowded together or my teenagers off sitting with their friends. I'd much rather have that. For years, I've been trying to get families to sit together in mass, right? That's the ideal, right? And I have that. 
And I think, well, I mean, this is what I was hoping for. And even in the first place, I wish it weren't that <laughs> with this reason, but mm. I'm glad that the families are coming to Mass together now and sitting together. And uh, so I say, what's not to like about this? And uh, there are a number of other things, too. I mean, there are people who are even saying social distancing is anti-Christian. Social distancing is anti-Catholic. I say, well, tell it to the hermits. Tell it to the anchorites. I mean, tell it to those who, during the persecution of Dacius, went off into the deserts, right? What does our Lord say when these times come? He says, don't go into the house, get your things. He said, just take off into the mountains. Our Lord says this, right? We read it last Sunday after Pentecost, first Sunday of Advent, mm. right? We, we read about these things happening. And so, you know, I think there are certain actual benefits to it. And I have to, I have to kind of socially distance my mind from the whole idea <laughs> of it because it's coming from puerile thought, you know? Mm. And uh, medically, I think it's being shown that it is not only nonsense, but it actually hurts our immune system to be socially distanced from each other, to be locked down, to be hiding under the bed. It's actually not allowing us to keep up with the immunity we need. And so it's weakening our immune systems right now, even as we're doing it. So from a medical point of view, I find it's less and less persuasive. I think it's more and more persuasive that it's... a doing more harm than good by far, you know. But as I say, from another point of view, uh, I'm glad we have four masses in our church right now, mm -hmm. even though it's very difficult. And um, the masses are calm and peaceful. And, uh, and uh, I think people have actually benefited from attending the masses under these circumstances. But but what about Personally. those? What about those who would say that it's a it's a bit of a slippery slope because you know here we have this this one recommendation or even a strong recommendation that the mm -hmm. the uh, the government provides for us and uh, we follow that. What about mm -hmm. the next crazy recommendation that they have? Are we going to follow that? And there are also those who say that this uh, this kind of gives credence to the the hysteria that we've been talking about. It kind of fosters an, an environment of, of fear. You know, here we're, we're saying how this is uh, really essentially no worse than a bad flu season. I, I would agree with them all. I think what Mr. Gunn had said there, quoting Mr. Horowitz, David Horowitz, or maybe it was this other lady who, who said that, that was the virus is real, the crisis is not. That was actually mild. That was <laughs> Mr. Thomas Cotter. Yeah, I just did. don't have access to the right columns for the whole country. Well, that's going to go viral. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I, I agree with that. And... Um, but, I, you know, I, as I say, I mean, traditional Catholics can react in kind of a knee-jerk reaction that what comes from government, we don't want this, and, sure. you know, this is tyranny and all the rest. I understand that. But if there's something that in itself, let's say, is not necessarily a bad thing, and actually if we could have four masses on a Sunday, and this is the only, I can't imagine any other circumstances under which we could have gotten four masses <laughs> at, our, at Immaculate Conception Church during this time. And uh, as I say, I've been trying for years to get the families all mm. to, to join together and come to Mass and sit together in Mass. And nothing I've tried has worked. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not in favor of the government tyranny. I'm not in favor of tyranny under any circumstances, under any name, okay? And I want to see that certainly come to an end. Um, if I could keep the, uh, the four Masses at our church and I could reasonably also keep the families coming together, I would even long after 
social distancing is is just a quaint uh, joke, you know, in the past that people thought would scratch your head and say, I, I can't believe they got us to do that. <laughs> but the fact is, um, I, insofar as something like this is mandated and used as a weapon against the churches being open and divine worship, I'm totally against it insofar as it is, it is done by government fiat, unless there is a real honest-to-goodness necessity for it. Um, but they have no right to shut down the churches. They'd have no right to do that, right? Not the, Catholic, the traditional Catholic Church. I'll speak for ourselves. I mean, they have no, no power on heaven or on earth that can justify that. Um, but having said that, let me, let me point out, though, now that we've seen how this has all played out, I mean, the way it was all presented to us was that we had, we were told we had to expect this enormous flood of deathly ill people suddenly crying out in need of, of, of death, of help that we couldn't possibly give them. That this was going to be like the black plague replayed mm -hmm. all over the world, especially in our own country, right? That's what we were told, essentially. And uh, we didn't know. You know, we were told this is a novel virus. The medical community did not know what to expect here. Well, some of them might have known, but not the people I talked to. They were mystified by it, too. So uh, now we know. See, now we have the advantage, advantage of having seen how this has played out. So when you ask the question, well, what about the slippery slope and what's going to happen next? I think what's going to happen next is people are, are beginning to understand what's going on here. I think the leftists have really overplayed their hand. Yeah. And this is why, I mean, I, I see the hand of God in all, all of this, that, yes, we are being punished for our sins, but I also see the hand of God in, in this, too. This is now on the table. This is out patent for everyone to see exactly what the, the, the agenda was here. Anyone who, as I say, has ears to hear, eyes to see, they can see what's going on right now, and they're aware. People who were blissfully unaware just a few weeks ago, are becoming very, very much aware of the politics of this. And we have an opportunity here now that perhaps, perhaps he would not have heard before, had before. You know, an opportunity to respond to this and get a message across about the spiritual reality here mm -hmm. and get people to understand the need for them to pray and the need for them to stop sinning and follow Our Lady's message to family. Sure. So I'm, I'm hoping that uh, this has been kind of an awakening for people that they will say, now we know what this was all about, and we're not going to let this happen to us again. Sure. Okay. Well, uh, perhaps we can wrap up with that. I guess, Mr. Connell, I'll start with you. Any final, final remarks? Well, you know, I, actually, if I may circle really around to the beginning and the, the issue of this uh, uh, House Bill 6666 mm -hmm. and the ramifications of, of um, you know, will, will they come to your homes? Uh, which I think is a serious thing, as I think we've we've covered as a possibility. I wanted to, since I feel like I've done maybe a little too much political commentary here, but I'm here as a lawyer by invitation. And, you know, uh, I've had some interesting experience with cases, uh, Fourth Amendment violations. And if I can just read a couple of things quickly, I, I just cut a few things out and brought the, um, so the Fourth Amendment, uh, the, the U.S. Constitution says 
the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause supported by oath, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons to be seized. Okay, this is the U.S. Supreme Court, in an opinion uh, decision back in the 1980s, dealing with entry of the home by police officers, warrantless entries of the home, said it's axiomatic that the physical entry of the home is the chief evil against which the wording of the Fourth Amendment is directed. Mm. And a principal protection against unnecessary intrusions into private dwellings is the warrant requirement imposed by the Fourth Amendment on agents of the government who seek to enter the home for purposes of search or arrest. It is not surprising, therefore, that the court has that, that the Supreme Court has recognized as a basic principle of Fourth Amendment law that searches and seizures inside a home without a warrant are presumptively unreasonable. And a search or seizure carried out on a suspect's premises without a warrant is per se unreasonable unless the police can show the presence of exigent circumstances. And they go on to talk about how the, the, the purpose of the warrant requirement is so that a, what, what the phrase is, a detached and neutral magistrate can assess whether this is necessary instead of have government agents and bureaucrats and appointees and social workers, whatever, deciding that they, without any judge looking at anything, is going to come to your house, not because there's been a crime, right? Not because there's probable cause of a crime or that you possess dangerous things in your house. No, because you might have a virus. Now, this is... <laughs> the, the, the Fourth Amendment stands very tall if this gets serious. The question, will the judges handle these things as the Fourth Amendment has historically been handled? Because if you read the Fourth Amendment in this case law, you can feel very safe in your homes. Mm -hmm. But... It's almost like the, uh, the the founding fathers foresaw or anticipated something like this. They, HR they, right. coming down the pipe. more than that, probably with yeah, King Henry. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> anyway, if, uh, there's reason to feel secure under the Fourth Amendment, but uh, stay tuned. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> As you say, I mean, it has to be applied. It has to be, but well, we have to fight for it. Yeah, right. Basically, right. And, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, the legal point of view. I mean, we're apologizing for it, but I, I do appreciate it very much. Uh, it's the, your legal expertise and the subject legal as a Catholic, as a Catholic American uh, who loves the church and loves the church country as a love for God. Your viewpoint is very much appreciated, Tom, and I know our viewers appreciate that, too. Okay. Thank you. Um, I... If I could kind of wrap this up, Tom, too. Far. Okay. For years, I've been, I have been trying to convince people there's something going on with the leftists and the communists, and the church has been always very much contrary to the revolutionary, you know, leftists, and I'm trying to get the point across. Very limited opportunity to get through to people. You know, what we're dealing with, this has done it. This has awakened more people to it. And, um, I have not actually, even to this moment, spoken my mind on the whole subject. I'm not, you know, I'm, I wouldn't liken myself to St. Thomas more in this, but I've had to show a certain restraint because my concern has to be above all, 
having the Mass and the sacraments available for the people, and I can't jeopardize that. But what I, what I expect to happen, what I hope will happen, that when this is all, when the people break out of this, uh, this situation, and then they've actually restored some normalcy and sanity to life, I expect that the traditional Catholic people and the clergy are going to speak out in a very forceful way and make it very clear exactly what we think of all this. I know I intend to. And uh, I look forward to that moment because it's very difficult. It's been very difficult to hold back. Okay, every now and then you get a little, a little glimmer, mm-hmm. you know, of that, <laughs> you know, frustration. But I, I do think there's going to be a lot of pushback on this, and I welcome that. The people are going to really lay down, uh, really make clear where they stand on this, and they're going to draw a line, and it's not going to be in the sand. Uh, so I just hope and pray that when they do that, that they understand the spiritual dimensions of all this, the spiritual origins of the problem, that they apply it to themselves, because the next step will be telling people, look, okay, now you see the gravity of the problem. Now you have to understand the origins. It's in the way you're living your life with your you know, impurities and blasphemies and obscenities and what entertains you and all the rest. These are the things that you have to give up because this is what's coming. And the only thing that's holding it back is the grace of God right now. So I hope, you know, that they'll be open for that message when the time comes because that's the next, that's the second wave right there. That's the one that they have to be hit with. Like, why did this happen to us in the first place? This is a gentle warning from heaven. And, uh, I hope I hope people will take that warning. Sure. And if I may make a final comment in response to that, and I'm not saying this to ingratiate myself to Father, but uh, we've been in touch through the whole thing. You know, I think he just handled it brilliantly. The people he, the people here at Imm- Immaculate Conception probably can appreciate it. Viewers from around the country and the world aren't. They're not here. But I think Father has brilliantly handled the thing. Um, just. Throughout the whole mm-hmm. the handling of mass and everything, well, he I mean, could not possibly be criticized by anybody. Yeah. He couldn't be. Yeah. So, Father, well, uh, well, as a matter of fact, <laughs> you'd but, be surprised. But let's just say that's that's why I wanted you on the show. Yeah, so I knew you would say that. So, okay. that's, wow, that's really what this is all. All right. Well, wow. not or you couldn't reasonably be criticized. How's that? Okay. That's good. That's good. Well, um, one one final thing uh, before we end the program tonight. Uh, we, we have the month of June coming upon us, which is the, the month of, of the Sacred Heart and our, our wonderful uh, Lady Sodality here at Immaculate Conception, our, our Lady of Perpetual Help Sodality. They have put together uh, these, uh, these Sacred Heart um, bumper stickers or, or bumper magnets, I guess you would call them. So we have a couple different styles here that maybe I could hold up for the, uh, for the camera here. This, uh, this first one, My Jesus Mercy, very... Uh, beautiful round magnet here, and we also have the uh, the the smaller rectangle one. Oh Jesus, meek and humble of heart, make my heart like unto thine. These are um, wonderful, wonderful products that uh, Our Lady of Perpetual Help Sodality has has put together. They're uh, they've I think actually become quite the hit. Father, I know uh, every time I, I pull up to to Immaculate Conception here, I see them on nearly all all of the uh, the bumpers of the vehicles in the parking lot. So uh, they, the the Lady Sodality has has plenty uh, of these these car magnets available 
they are ready and willing to to ship them out to you. Uh, if, if any of our viewers would like to make a purchase of these, we can uh, place the information in the uh, in the description below. Perhaps we can place the, the website on the screen now. But uh, if anyone is interested in those, I would uh, I would heartily recommend those. And uh, I know you would as well, Father. Uh, I, I, I guess they would, um, we can put all the information here, but I believe it's the uh, Lady of Perpetual Help uh, website, which would be, uh, I guess, our Lady of Perpetual Help uh, dot Weebly.com. And we can um, place that on the screen now and put okay. that in, in the information. Or could they send it to the What Catholics Believe website and you would pass it on? They can, yeah. Yeah, yeah that, w that would work as well. I can uh, get them in contact with the Sodality and we can go from there. But yeah. And can I add what I know about it as firsthand from yeah. one of the leaders? This is not a fundraiser. They, they, they want to get these out there yeah. to, to yeah. honor and an increased devotion to the Sacred Art. Definitely. It, it'll be donations for cost or something is mm -hmm. the spirit of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're yeah. very cheap. If I yeah. remember correctly, I want to say they're $3. A magnet, I think so. I, I believe um, for for both styles, so definitely more than more than reasonable. But uh, all right, well, with that, uh, Mr. Connett, thank you for being thank here. Thank you for having Pleasure me. Pleasure to have you. Any, you're welcome any any time. Uh, so well, we'd love to have you back on, Father Jenkins. Thank you as well. Thank you both well, for being here. Certainly, yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.